Welcome to another episode of Reimagine Diversity and Equity, a podcast by the U.S. Institute of Peace. With me today is Dagan Ali, Executive Director of ADESO, a nonprofit based in Kenya working to change the way people think about and deliver aid. Dagan, I'm curious, how did you first identify this change in perspective as a need? Growing up in the U.S., being exposed to the whole you know, all the issues around racism and equality um, over the years and understanding issues around power and all of that. And uh, so coming to work in the aid sector, I was very naive thinking that, you know, people in the aid sector are not cannot be racist, that they're all do-gooders and, um, you know, that we're all kind of working for the same goal. And so I came into it with very naive and not really understanding um, how the structure worked and all of that. And in the beginning, working for a UN agency, I realized, well, first of all, the job hunting process itself was very kind of telling for me because I was treated like a second class citizen with the you know, same qualifications and the same degrees and as many quote unquote internationals or expatriates working in my own country in Somalia. Um, But being a Somali citizen, being a Somali national, being Somali ethnic group, I was perceived with, I was always received with lots of distrust and, um, and the idea that I could never become an expatriate, I could never become an international. Actually, someone leading the UN system at that time even told me that bluntly, um, that I could never become an international. I had to settle for a national salary and uh, pay. And I was I didn't understand that whole differentiation between national and international. But I was like, well, if I have the same qualifications as someone from Sweden or, you know, I'm an American citizen, why would I have to take less pay? Oh, because you're a Somali ethnic group. So I was like, the passport and my education doesn't count. And they were like, no. So that's that told me right then and there. That was my first kind of real confrontational with how so many layers were like involved in that issue. One was just pure racism and the fact that somebody who's white can work in my own country and would be given preferential treatment and receive a contract that's three times, four times the salary of the national staff who, who's doing the bulk of the work, who understands the context and is probably doing a lot better quality work. So that in itself was like the whole pay system and how um, there was a huge preference for these "Quote unquote expatriate," which, which in my 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 eyes over the years, I learned was like code for really white people uh, from the north. And then the second, I think, layer of that issue was just the distrust, the fact that I, as a Somali, could never be trusted, that I was never um, equal in my in my ability to be objective, in my ability to be. Um, part of the crowd, the in crowd, or being able to be perceived with credibility and and all of that because I was a Somali um, ethnic for my ethnicity. So it didn't matter my education. It didn't matter that I grew up in the U.S. It didn't matter my uh, degrees, uh, my passport. None of that mattered. But because I had the Somali ethnicity and Somali people and staff were always perceived um, to be oh, we can't trust them, they're not objective, they can't be neutral, you know, you can't, they, they won't keep confidentiality, all of those kinds of 
things were always said around me about Somali people over the years I learned. And so there was, there was, that was another layer of just something that was extremely problematic. And I think that was also exemplified in 2003 when, we, when, when I started working with Adesso, a local NGO, leaving the UN and being also treated, I think, much better because I was in the UN. So whatever treatment I got was 100 times better in the UN uh, as a black woman, as a black Somali woman, um, because I was still a UN employee. But once I moved to a local organization and moved to Adesso and being associated with a very small grassroots organization, being associated with local, being associated with all these kinds of things that had like, they were like dirty words, you know? Um, that's, I think, when I realized that, oh, okay, so the power issues are extremely different and the comfort and acceptance I had as a UN employee is so different now that I'm on this other side. So, um, and then it was further exemplified by the, the information. So in 2003, there was a drought and we came up with a lot of data about the drought conditions and including like 70% livestock loss of camels and things like that. So I presented this information to the international community in a meeting, in a public meeting. And people basically told me in not very nice way, in a very blunt way, that I was lying, that I was fabricated information and data and that I couldn't, my, our data could never be trusted. And that was also another shock. I was like, what? <laughs> I had never been treated like that. And I was shocked. And I was just like, why is our data less important, significant? So, and you know, oh, because you're not objective. You guys don't know how to, you can't collect quality data. You don't know how to do assessments. You don't know how to develop these tools. And anyways, you're biased anyway. So you just want money to go towards your own people and your own community. I was just shocked. Um, so that was also, I think, just another major aha moment for me when I realized, oh, okay, so there is definitely um, different systems that exist, um, different classifications and different level of trust and credibility and all of that. It wasn't just employment issues but and pay scale and all of that, but it's actually like not just the funding, but also just credibility and trust. Um, so I think those were the kinds of moments that informed, heavily informed my understanding of the, the inequality in the system and the injustice in the system. I have many, many such stories. I, I mean, I, I've been called a liar in public meetings. I have been blacklisted over the years for calling out racism in the space. I All types of things have happened to me. So, um, but those were, I think, the beginning, the first time when I started really realizing how different, I, I mean, how, how the naive, very idealistic picture I had painted in my head coming, having left the U.S. was not really what the reality on the ground was. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences that really articulated the need for these values that we're talking about of justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. I wonder, 
What do you think about the benchmarks for gauging improvement in those areas when building these ideal structures for delivering aid? Well, for me, I don't use these terms, um, these terms of justice and diversity and equity and inclusion. I think they're, while I, the intent is very positive, I think that they are terms that not really been, um, that don't fully in, encapsulate all the issues. I think it becomes more of a, a conversation, a discussion around issues around biases and and um, diversity and HR and diversity in boards and staff and pay equity and all of that. It really doesn't get to the underlying issues of of like the the colonial elements of why the aid system is broken. I, I, while it's really important to me to feel, to make people feel included, while it's really important to me that we remove the issues of racism in the sector, I think what is more of a priority really is, is that we don't even have aid to begin with, that we start thinking about how we move the, the chains that have been created during um, you know, the time of um, the ending of colonialism through the Bretton Woods systems, the World Trade Organization, the UN Security Council, veto power, um, IMF, World Bank, all of these institutions were designed to ensure that the former colonizers and imperialists still maintain control, financial, economic, and political control, um, and that the hegemony is still with the West. And so, which continues to ensure that we have these banned aid solutions called aid. Aid is not going to lift people out of poverty. I always say that. UNDP or UNICEF or Save the Children or Oxfam, poverty alleviation or food security programs are not going to lift people out of poverty and remove hunger in the South. That's not what happens. What does do that is trade and economic growth and employment. That's what lifted millions and millions and millions of people in China in the past 20, 25 years out of poverty. It's through that economic growth, it's through trade, um, equity, and all of those things. And so I wanna see a world where Africa and Asia and these countries don't require aid anymore, that they are actually givers of aid, that we can actually create a world where there is more solidarity, where people in the South are actually donors to crises in the North and and uh, and people and there isn't all of this baggage and history and na narrative and all of that attached to aid that it becomes about giving in solidarity whether you are based in Malawi or um, or whether you're based in the UK that it's the same um, and it becomes like a human thing where we give to each other rather than this idea of 
oh, we in the West and the North continue to save you. They're not saving us. They're just ensuring that we continue to need the North by ensuring that our governments are not able to exercise financial and economic sovereignty. They're not able to implement trade policies that are fair to the South. Um, food sovereignty is a good example and good issue to, to use as an example. You know, you, you destroy countries like Malawi's subsidies, farmer subsidies, as part of World Bank and IMF loan programs, you say you have to destroy your subsidies, you have to destroy your reserves in order to get these massive loans from us. And then these loans become so constricting, they take a huge amount of the GDP that the country can't invest in health and education and things to move the society, um, develop society. And it becomes a vicious circle. So tomorrow when a crisis happens and a drought happens in Malawi, then now you come in as the UK and US, the same governments that were that were the architects of the World Bank and the IMF programs that destroyed the subsidies. Now you have a food security crisis in the same country that was food sovereign, that was food independent. And then now you fund UNICEF or the Save the Children's to run a malnutrition program, to run a, a food security program in the same country. That Those are the things that we need to really understand are at the... That's what I would like to address. I'm not interested in addressing only diversity issues and inclusion issues, which are important. I'm not saying they're not important, but I think that once you address the underlying root causes of these problems of the aid system and why it's broken, then we can achieve equality and, and all of that because we will be at a living playing field. You cannot achieve equality or equity or justice if you're always in the position of being the beggar and someone all other else is always in the position of the giver. If there's no equality in that. Um, you can only have equality if you're both at the same um, level playing field. So there's a lot of discussion within the peace building community about the very concept of the global north and the global south. How does your work towards localization pave the path toward leveling the playing field? And what are some of the challenges you faced? Well, first of all, I've always said that I'm not a fan of the term localization. I don't like the word localization. It was a term that was imposed on us by the North. It was not something that we chose to describe our movement for justice. Um, I like to use terms like decolonizing the sector. Um, and so what has become the localization movement and effort unfortunately has been focused around technical issues like how do you move money and those kinds of things rather than a really important conversation around power and um, economic and financial independence and political independence so after all the things that i've just spoken about i guess you can then say okay what is it that we need to ensure that we don't even have an aid system, that we are not in this continuous cycle of dependency on Global North aid programs? Address that and let's start talking about supporting those kinds of movements, those kinds of grassroots um, civil society movements that are trying to work on food sovereignty issues, that are trying to work on you know, um, uh, global issues around trade and um, and uh, reparations and tr trying to um, address the things around the Bretton Woods institutions and all of that. Let's support those movements. Let's fund them directly and let's stop funding the intermediaries that really vitally depend 
their existence revolves around the continuation of this structure that I've described, this unequal, unjust structure. Um, you know, if we don't have this system where we are still in poor countries in the south and rich countries in the north, if we destroy that, then then what, what would be the purpose of all this entire industrial aid comp uh, complex that is the UN and INGOs? What would they be doing? Very little. Um, and that's what we're trying to say is like those that need to exit out of the countries, exit and leave the work of direct service delivery primarily to the governments, number one, they are the duty bearers. Number two, to the civil society, strengthen them, work with them, trust them, give them the resources directly and get out of the way. And let's have the international UN agencies and um, the UN agencies really transition to more technical support partner of the government and not direct deliverer of programs. And let the INGOs transition to more of a technical support partner of civil society and maybe a conduit of funding that local organizations cannot get. We cannot pu publicly fundraise in the US or the UK or Denmark with the public in these countries. Those are resources that these international agencies can bring to us and they can be the intermediaries to help us do that. But when it comes to direct implementation, when it comes to these expensive infrastructure that's created with these offices and regional offices and all of that, um, we need to do away with that and really become more transition to more of a facilitator, a partner, a technical partner or uh, a solidarity partner, an advocacy partner um, and, and less about trying to raise money for direct delivery and implement direct delivery on the ground and leaving that to the governments, number one, and secondly, to the civil society. So the obstacles to this has been that obviously all of what I'm talking about challenges the entire reason for existence of the aid architecture. So when people hear me talk the way I'm talking, it's like, oh, so you don't want us to exist, you know? No, like how do you, how do you convince the CEO of a multi-billion dollar NGO to shrink and become, you know, half of that or third of that over the next ten, five, 10 years and transition to becoming less of a deliverer of services and more of an advocate and more working in solidarity. It's really, really hard. Those are the really tough questions because every metrics of success in this sector is based around how much income you have as an organization, whether you're the UN or whether you're an international NGO, whether you're a contractor, how much is your income? How many countries do you work with? How many staff do you have? Those are the metrics of success. Metrics of success are not around devolving power. It's not around devolving resources. It's not about being uh, reducing your footprint, reducing your size. Those are not metrics of success currently for CEOs. So we have to really transition and really start thinking about different ways of, um, of, of classifying success in the sector and, and, and people not feeling so threatened um, to their entire livelihood and their entire reason for existing when we talk like this. But my point is whether they like it or not, the reality is that's the way the world is gonna go. Whether you accept it, and you work towards transitioning your institution to look completely different in the next five to 10 years, 
uh, and you do it in a thoughtful, systematic way, or you don't do it, but in 10 years, 15 years, you become irrelevant and you're not going to exist. Either way, it's going to happen. And I encourage the international agencies to really do it in a thoughtful way and to start planning for that now. What are the prospects for international non-governmental organizations or INGOs making these major changes? I think um, it's a mixed bag. Um, there are some INGOs that are very progressive and very ready to to, to grab the bull by the horn and um, start working on this internally. And some of them are. Um, some of them, some of the CEOs are really convinced, but they have entire machinery around them. If you're part of a large confederation, it's not just you as that entity in the UK or that entity in the US that you have to convince. You have to convince the entire federation. And some of the members of the federation are not there yet. So it's a hit or miss. Um, and then there's those who are just completely like in denial about it and don't want anything to change. They pay some lip service to these issues and they say, yes, this is important. But reality is, is that they continue to do the same thing over and over again, whether it's in Ukraine now, um, or whether it's in the Horn of Africa crisis now or Sahel crisis, wherever it is, they continue to do the same old, same old. So um, I think there's been some positive reception to some of these ideas. And I'm happy to say that some INGOs um, have walked us bravely, have walked with us bravely on this journey and this path for about the past one year and a half through this process called the Pledge for Change. And we've been able to get some CEOs um, of CARE, Oxfam, Plan International, Christian Aid, and uh, hopefully Save the Children to all sign on to this thing document with much more um, brave language, much more brave, ambitious um, commitments than that have existed in the Grand Bargain or that have existed in the Charter for Change. And it's not... Um, obviously as radical as I would like it to be, but I think it's a work in progress. And um, they've, I think they have been courageous over the past one year and a half and knowing all the complexities and difficulties and challenges they have with their entire federated structures. Um, I think, yeah, I think what we have been able to get as the final product is, um, is good. Do you have any advice for those in the peace building and policy fields who are trying to push beyond the power status quo? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, I would say that peace and conflict resolution is a very, very complex. It's much more complex than delivering X services or good to Y communities. Um, that. It's complex, but it's less complex. Um, I think that peace and conflict resolution is, is is inherently political, and and rife with you know lots of uh, landmines and problems. And unfortunately, I haven't really seen much peace building programs that have been very successful in a place like Somalia that I've worked with, worked in for over twenty plus years. Um, Almost all the peace programs that have been successful have been indigenous, organic, led by the communities themselves, led by the elders, led by um, no, no real organized, formalized NGOs or programs or, you know, fun, uh, EU funded projects or UN funded projects. No. 
those, in my experience, have not worked. And so what I would encourage the peace-building community is just to have a very clear policy because I think peace-building is a unique space that requires even more to think about working proximately, working indigenously, working locally in a way that other other kind of work is not as critical, or it is critical, but not to the same level. So um, I think there has to be some kind of global understanding of that and policy decisions that say that peace-building funding will not be going to um, these international intermediaries that come into our countries and come with these you know, proposals and projects that are developed in their capitals and then just come and impose them. Um, yeah, I, so that's, that's my first and major advice to the peace-building community. Thank you to Dagan Ali and to all of you for listening to our podcast, Reimagine Diversity and Equity. If you've missed any episodes, we invite you to visit our website, usip.org, 